Have you ever, if you ever found yourself so under the pump, so pressured, so squeezed, a little bit like the song in the pressing, in the squeezing, have you ever found yourself wondering, is God actually trying to kill me? Is God really, is he just really just bringing that much stretch into my life, that much pressure, that much challenge into my life that he's actually trying to kill me? Well, the truth is, he is. <laughs> he is trying to kill you so that his life might live in you. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. I am dead with Christ. My old man has died with Christ that his life might live in me and through me. The truth is he is trying to kill us. I, I was reminded this week of that analogy that I have used many times over the years of our life being like the formation of a diamond. Now, I'm not a geologist, but... I'm led to believe that a diamond starts out as a piece of coal. That deep in the earth, in the seam that it's in, it sustains intense pressure consistently for a long period of time, many, many, many years. And over that season of pressure and, and intense force, a diamond is formed. But even when the diamond is formed, many years ago I had the, the, uh, the privilege of visiting the Cullinan diamond mine in, just outside of Johannesburg in South Africa, uh, near Pretoria actually. And, and even when the diamonds are mined out of the earth that have been there for so long under so much pressure, even when they are mined out of the earth, they don't look very good. They then have to go through another process of being refined, of being cut down, of being stripped, of being prepared so that its value, its true value can be brought to the surface. And I believe with all my heart, God, God is, is driving so many of us into places where all we'll have left is him. And when all we have left is him, it's exactly where he wants us to be because that's when he can bring his best out in us. That's when he can do his greatest level of work in us is when we've come to the end of ourselves and we have actually allowed him to kill us so that we can say, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives within me. It's at that point, the value of the deposit of God in our life that has made us new creations will come to the forefront and like an offering we will be poured out like a seed falling into the ground that dies will not remain alone but will actually bear much fruit it's at that point God is glorified because our life has become completely and utterly used usable by him I was reading that passage in Genesis chapter 41 again this week and and it's a passage that I have drawn so much encouragement from over the years of ministry, particularly over the last seven years or so. It's a passage that has, has so inspired me 
to the potential that God wants to bring out in our life. And it's Genesis 41, verses 50 through 52. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came. Before the years of famine came. He'd had a dream, Pharaoh had had a dream, he had interpreted the dream. And uh, it was the seven cows coming up out of the Nile River that were fat and, and healthy and whole. And, and then suddenly seven gaunt, sickly-looking cows came up out of the river and devoured the fat cows. And then Pharaoh had another dream where seven heads of wheat uh, sprouted and they were, they were lush and they were healthy and whole. And then seven very... Uh, sickly looking heads of wheat sprouted and devoured the healthy heads of wheat and he was confused by it he calls for Joseph Joseph interprets the dream that the seven fat cows and the seven healthy heads of wheat uh, depict seven years of, of plenty that is coming upon the land but the seven lean cows and the sickly heads of wheat depicted seven years of famine and it was a, a warning by God, really, it was a gift to Joseph to get favor with Pharaoh because that was the tipping point of all of the years of pressure, all of the years of pain, all of the years of discouragement, of setback, of disappointment. It was a gift to Joseph that would finally tip the scales after 13 years behind a prison wall after almost 20 years of, of abandonment and rejection and pain and suffering. It was a gift that gave him favor with Pharaoh that enabled him to rise up and become the prime minister of Egypt, uh, ultimately, was, which is what the calling of God was upon his life. It's interesting when God calls you, you're not ready to do what he's called you to do. He's got to prepare you for the calling. He's got to kill you first. He's got to kill the flesh. He's got to kill the personal wants, the personal dreams, the personal desires, so that he ultimately is the one that gets all the glory. But to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For God, he said, has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has called, caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction, not out of it. You know, affliction is a gift from God. Affliction is a part of the preparation process and the planning process and the outworking of what he wants to do in us so that he can do more effectively through us what he's called us to do. In Genesis chapter 26, the, the, the chapter opens with this statement, there was a famine in the land. You know, famines back in those days in the Middle East were very, very unpleasant. It was a time where everybody suffered. Everybody felt the pinch. Everybody felt the pain of the famine. And... Isaac had risen up. Abraham had come to the end of his life. Isaac was now on the rise as the next generation of the called of God to take the land and become a great nation that God would bless and that God would uh, move through to bring salvation to the planet. 
Isaac rises up and, and the opening chapter says there was a famine in the land. But then the Lord says something to him in the second or third verse. He says, do not go down to Egypt. You see, the temptation was Egypt was a lush land. Egypt was not in famine. Egypt was in a place of plenty. And, and there was the temptation to run from the pain and look for the comfort. There was the temptation to run from the affliction, to run from the, the pressing and the pressure to find something that would bring ease to the pain. And you know, if you look back one generation to his father Abraham, it's a very fascinating story in Genesis 12. You, you read that God called Abraham and said to Abraham, I want you to leave your father's house. I want you to leave your family. It's, he doesn't just say leave your father's house. He says, leave your family. So it was, it was a wider family thing. He had to break away from everything he had known, from not just his, his direct siblings, his brothers, his sisters, but from his cousins, his uncles, his aunties. His, you know, he had to break away from it all. And it was a revelation from heaven and said, go to the land that I will show you. And so Abraham, in obedience, goes and finds himself in the land that God had led him to. And then a famine breaks out. And then we read an interesting thing in Genesis 12 that God said, leave your father's house and go. So he did. But then a famine broke out. So Abraham went to Egypt. It doesn't say God told him to go to Egypt. It said Abraham went. You see, there's, there's something inside of human nature that, that wants to run from the pressure of the moment. There's something inside of us that does not want to face the challenge or face the pain. And so when the pressure comes, we go looking for what it is that will bring comfort, what it is that will bring relief, what it is that will bring an easing of the pressure that we find ourselves in. And we completely abort what God is trying to achieve with the pressure in our life, you see, it's been said that when one door closes, another one opens. But sometimes it can be an awfully long period in the corridor. Because when one closes, the other one doesn't automatically open. But the corridor is the incubator of faith. The corridor is the incubator of trust. The corridor is that place where we learn our dependence upon God. And you see, God says to Isaac, when the famine breaks out, in, in, a, in a sense, he's saying, don't make the same mistake your father made. When the famine broke out, Abraham went to, or Abraham at the time, went to Egypt. And when you follow that story, he got into such a political hailstorm that it almost cost him his life. And you know, you just read that Abram went to Egypt, got in this huge mess, and after the mess explodes in his face, it then says he then went back to where God took him to. So you see, he did that out of a sense of reason, out of a sense of, I've got to get out of this. I don't like this. This is uncomfortable. And, and, and God says to Isaac, don't make the same mistake that your father Abram made. Stay where I put you, but there's a famine in the land. Stay where I've put you. Trust in the fact that I am Jehovah Jireh, that I am your provider. I will give you what you need. Not necessarily what you want, but I will give you what you need to get through this season, to get through this period, to get through this situation in your life, because I want you to learn to trust me that no matter what you face, I can bring you through the valley of the shadow of death. 
I can get you to the other side, but you've got to trust me. And too often we want revelation from heaven, but we, we live our life out of reason. What seems like the right thing to do? What seems like the most sensible or the wisest thing to do? God is not into common sense. God is into faith. He gives us common sense. And I'm not saying we should be foolish or stupid, but he doesn't want us to operate through our relationship with him out of common sense. He wants us to trust him because God will often do things in reverse to the way common sense would tell us to do things. So God says to Abram, I want you to stay focused. I want you to stay the course. I want you to hang in there. I want you to put your roots down. But there's a famine. Trust me, is what he's saying. Trust me. And then we read on in verse 12 of Genesis 26. Then Isaac sowed in that land, the land of famine, and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Go figure. Nobody else was reaping anything. Nobody else was harvesting. The seeds were dying in the ground except upon the plot of land that Isaac had positioned himself, where Isaac had trusted and lent on the revelation from heaven. Do not go to the place of comfort, but stay the course and watch the salvation of God come into your life and into your situation. But you've got to learn to trust me. God is trying to kill us. He's trying to get Jesus to rise up and live on the inside of us. He's trying to get the image of Christ impressed upon our lives that we might yield to him and allow him to do ultimately what only he can do in us that will last for eternity. You know, both of these men, Joseph and, and Isaac, had what I would call stickability. They had stickability. They had the ability to just hang in there and fight the fight of faith. They had the ability there not to grow bitter, not to become unsettled, but to fight the fight of faith, to push through, to keep charging, to keep going, to keep pressing, to keep trusting, to keep believing, to keep hanging on. Even when all hope was lost, Abraham, where there was no hope, against hope, trusted and believed, and so became. You see, that's what God is trying to get us to do, is that we, we, we look to nothing but Him, nothing but His provision, nothing but His power, nothing but His strength in our life that will sustain us. You know, I, I was reading yesterday the story of Elijah. You know, he doesn't get much publicity in the Bible. It's only about three chapters, 1 Kings chapter 17, 18, and 19. But you see, Elijah comes on the scene with a burst. You read, King Ahab became king and Elijah appeared on the scene. We're not told his background. We're not told his lineage. We're not told um, you know, what kind of an education he had had. He just appears, a little bit like Melchizedek. He just appeared on the scene. And, and he comes, obviously, out of this intimate relationship with God, with heaven, that gave him a boldness and a tenacity to bring the now word of the Lord. And there was such moral decay in the land. King Ahab was a wicked king, one of the most wicked kings to ever sit on the throne of Israel. And his sweetheart of a wife, Jezebel, was his right-hand woman that enabled him to just go from one level of degradation to another. And this king took the nation of Israel so low, so 
morally low. So such decay had infiltrated the people of God and, and God had had enough. And he sends Elijah into the situation and he says, Elijah, I want you to tell Ahab and I want you to tell my people that from this moment, there will be no more dew, there will be no more rain, there will be no more sustenance on the earth. A, an incredible famine is going to hit the land. And I want you to tell them that the rain will not come back until I say so. Not God. He says, Elijah, I want you to take this and I want you to say until I, Elijah, say so. You know, there was a lot of pain hit the planet, and Elijah became very unpopular. He just arrives on the scene. He hasn't, hasn't even got a chance to establish a name for himself. And, and he just says, Ahab, there will not be rain or, or fruit or harvest or blessing on this land until I, Elijah, say so. That's what God told him to say. He became incredibly unpopular with the people, incredibly unpopular. But not only did he declare that, and not only did it happen, he then suffered the famine himself. God said to him, now I want you to get out of here. Like, do a runner, mate. Go, because these people are going to hate you. And just for your own safety, you need to just clear off. I've, I've, I've got this little spot for you beside a little river that you can drink from, and I've commanded ravens to feed you. How would you like a word like that? You know, no more roasts coming out of the freezer. No more baked spuds, no more provision like you've been accustomed to, no more just ducking down to Woolies and just getting what you want when you want it, no more big bags of chips, no more big family-sized blocks of chocolate. I've commanded ravens to feed you. What they scavenge from the roadkill, I'm going to sustain you on. That was the word of God. to Just like you've told me to take responsibility for the drought and that I'm the one that's going to bring the rain back at my word and now... You haven't even got like a, a hotel prepared somewhere in a nearby, you know, what about Egypt? I mean, we could duck down to Egypt, but the, what happened to Abraham down in Egypt? Now, God just said, I just want you to trust me. Because you see, he was doing a work not only in the people of God by bringing pain and pressure upon them. He's doing a work in Elijah as well. So Elijah goes, he finds the little river and he sits and the ravens come with the, the roadkill. That was, that was breakfast, lunch and dinner. Quite a miracle, really. And he drank from the water. But then all of a sudden, the river dried up. Now, if you're anything like me, I'd have said, God, where are you? There's no more water. Even the ravens have stopped coming. There's no more roadkill. The animals are just, they've been devoured. They're gone. There's, you know, and this, add, add to that, God is silent. There is no word from heaven for Elijah. You read the passage. God tells him to do this. He does it. It happens exactly as he declares, as God said it would happen. And then he's, he's eating roadkill and then that even dries up and then he's got nothing. And heaven is silent about when this drought will end. He's just, he's just out there suffering with everybody else and just trusting God in the silence. And then out of the blue, God says, go to Zarephath because I've got a widow there who's just about to die herself I've commanded her to. can you imagine current affair getting a hold of that story man if God bludges on poor widow who's about to die 
How do you think the church would stand up in the scrutiny of, of 60 minutes or a current affair over the, the man of God who's just, you know, he then arrives in Zarephath and says to the woman, you know, God's told me you're going to look after me and feed me. She said, I haven't got anything to give you. How do you think he felt then? God, you said that you had prepared her. I just haven't told her yet. But she hasn't got anything. And then Elijah says, what do you have? I've got a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. And she is so dejected. She is so flat. She just says to him, and I was about to turn that into a little bit of bread for my son and I to eat so that we could just sit here and die. That was, and he says, well, before you die, use that to feed me. (laughs) Talk about scandal in the church. You know, talk, talk about the pastor getting the whole offering. Talk about every, you know, this, this is pressure. This is pressure like many of us have never, ever experienced before. But, but in the meantime, God is silent. God's not saying, you know, hang in there, Elijah, because on this date, at this time, you will actually break the drought and everything will go well. You'll have a tough time with Jezebel when it all happens, but you'll get through that. He didn't tell him any of that. He just said, trust me. He just said, trust me. And when we read the Bible and we study some of the great men and women of faith, every single one of them had to do the same thing. I look at Job who lost everything. He went through so much pain, that man, that my pain, my challenges, my storms pale in insignificance in comparison. Yet he came to a place where he could say, though he slay me, I will still trust him. Because ultimately he's good. I don't have clarity, but I can trust sovereignty. I can hang in there and I can just stay the course and I can keep pushing and I can keep pressing. Even when I've got no strength left to do it, I will still push as hard as I can with what strength I've got and God will get me through it. But we've got to stay the course. He said, well, how long will it be? I don't know. For Elijah, it was three and a half years. He said, well, I've been going five. Well, for Joseph, it was 13. And in fact, if you want to add the pain previous, you could say it was 20. Because then he went through the betrayal, the misrepresentation. He he went through the uh, false imprisonment. He went through all of that sort of stuff. And then he was in prison for 13 years. You know, say, how long is it going to take? I don't know. Ask Job. How long is it going to take? He lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his kids. He lost his livestock. He lost, he lost his, his assets. He lost, he lost his health. He lost everything and sunk into a pile of pain and pressure. But out of the ashes, God raised his purpose, his plan, his ultimate perfection and raised up. And, and to this day, I still don't know exactly what the purpose was. And sometimes we have to be content with that. You know, there's a certain type of Chinese bamboo. It's a fascinating story. And a lot of people don't understand, even in China, don't understand this, but bamboo is quite a a commodity, uh, maybe to feed pandas, I don't know. But there's a certain type of bamboo that when you plow the field and you plant the seed, nothing happens for the first five years. Yet you still have to water it. If you don't water it, the seed will die and nothing will happen ever. But you see, the first year, 
It faces spring. It faces summer. It faces winter or autumn and then winter. And, and day in and day out, the farmer waters that seed and fertilizes that, that plowed trough where that bamboo has been planted. And a whole year goes by and nothing happens. Sometimes our life can be like that. We can feel like I'm putting in the yards, I'm, I'm putting in the prayer, I'm putting in the Bible study, I'm putting in the faithful serving in God's house, but nothing's happening. Why? You, you know, we've just got to let God be God. And, and, and the second year, the farmer has to water it regularly, daily, and fertilize it. Winter, summer, autumn, spring. I think I got that one muddled up. But you know how the seasons go? Nothing. Year three, the whole year goes by. Nothing. Year, year four, the whole year goes by. Nothing. And like if, if you're like me, you'd get very, very impatient, very intolerant. But, but this is a true story, this particular kind of bamboo. Nothing happens in the, in the first five years, but somewhere, if it's been watered properly, if it's been tended to faithfully, if it's been fertilized and nurtured, somewhere in the fifth year. Listen to me, this is true. That bamboo grows to a height of 90 feet in six weeks. Suddenly, suddenly something happens in the DNA of that little seed. If the seed's been cared for, if the, the seed of our soul has been nurtured, if it's been faithfully fed on the word of God, even when we see no apparent change, when we see no apparent increase, if that seed has been faithfully nurtured, somewhere in that, in that time frame of God's purpose, you will strike up. In the space of six weeks, it grows 90 feet. But the question is this, did it grow 90 feet in six weeks? Or did it grow 90 feet in five years? You see, it took the five years to develop a root system that would sustain the height that God had planned for that bamboo to grow to. You know, all the faithfulness that we put in without any seeming breakthrough is not wasted. That's why Paul says don't grow weary in doing good because in due time, well, we think, well, I think it's been due time. I've been doing this for, you know, and I think it's due. Hang on, what, what, what about God's due time? He makes all things beautiful in my time, no, in his time. He, he, he makes all things perfect in his time, in his plan, in his, you know, the way he unfolds things in our life. Our job is to stay the course. Our job is to stay faithful. Our job is to stay, you know, Jesus describes our life, I believe, very much like that bamboo. In John chapter 15, verse 4 through 5, Jesus said these words to us, remain in me and I will remain in you. Remain in me Remain. What does that word remain mean? It means stay. I mean, it doesn't mean just on Sunday. It actually means stay 24-7. Stay in me and I will stay in you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful 
unless you remain in me. You see, if we're in and out of our relationship with God, if we, if we only think about God on Sunday and not much happens in our relationship with him, don't, don't be disappointed when you don't bear fruit. Because the Bible is very, very clear here. If you want to be fruitful, if you want your suddenly in whatever fifth year of your journey to break out in your life, you've got to stay. You've got to stay focused. You've got to stay faithful. You've got to stay planted. You've got to stay, stay rooted in Him so that when the root system is finally finished and He's had His perfect way in the preparation and the planning, suddenly... You'll grow 90 feet in six weeks. Yes, he said, I am the vine. You are the branches. He's making this very, very simple for us. There's no, there's no room for interpretation here. He says, I'm the vine. You are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, we all think we can. We think oh, I've been doing a lot of things without Jesus for a long time. Yeah, but I think he's talking about things that really matter. Things, you know, Paul said that one day we will stand before the Lord and those who have built their life with wood, hay and stubble will lose the lot. Be gone. I think that's what Jesus is trying to say here. But those who are built with, with um, gold, silver and precious stones built with the word of God, who built with the, the gold that they, they mine out of the word of God themselves, the diamonds that are formed through their staying power and their stickability, like Joseph and Isaac had, that like Job had, you know, out of the dust. Do not grow, grow weary in doing good. You will reap in due course. There's no mites or maybes. There's no, well, I hope I do. You will. God is not a man that he should lie. He is faithful to his word. What he declares will, in fact, happen. What does, it, what, what does remaining in him look like? You see, remaining in him, I think there are three key things to, you know, it would always be confusing. Well, how do I abide in the vine? You know, we all know, in reality, you break a, 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 a branch off a grapevine and lay it on the ground, it, it's a matter of an hour, and that thing is already wilted. You can see the notable difference of being severed from the life flow of the vine. And we get it, but how, what does it mean to stay in him? Well, I think, firstly, that it's connection. You know, when I first gave my life to Jesus, I, I've, I've told these stories before, but, but I, I was so in love with him. I was so impacted by him. I couldn't stop thinking about him. You know, I, I would go to work and I'd be thinking about him. Sometimes I'd make mistakes on the job. I'd be that, that focused on him and his presence in my life that I'd think, oh, I've just made a big blunder. I need to focus here. Jesus, stop distracting me. It's like, but I was so focused. And lunchtime would come. I didn't want to sit with the other blokes. I just wanted to go out into my car and read my Bible. I wanted to listen to worship songs when Amy Grant was a big hit and Keith Green was a big hit. I'd sit there and his presence would fill. I was just God conscious all the time. It was the best season of my life. Connection is to develop a God consciousness. It's to develop a, a connection where you, you're aware of him. You, you, you include him. You, you, you do life with him. You don't, you don't go anywhere. And, and I'm not talking about being weird. I'm just talking about being present with God as he is present with you. It's, it's living from a consistent, intimate relationship with the Savior. 
where, where like Jesus, he calls us to only do what he sees his father doing. I think we can come to that place of awareness. I think we can come to that place of God consciousness where, where you know, Jesus, while it was still dark, a great while before the sun rose, got up and went out to a lonely place and there prayed. There he started his day in connection with heaven. He woke and said, we're in this together. We're walking this journey together. Father, where do you want me to go today? Who do you want me to speak to today? Who do you want me to touch today? I believe it's possible to actually become so God conscious. Some people say, oh, you've got to be careful. You become so heavenly minded, you become no earthly good. I think the problem is we are so earthly minded, we are of no heavenly good. I don't think that problem is something we need to worry about. You know, because I think when we're in touch with God and we're, we're listening and we're in tune, even when he's silent, we're conscious of his presence. And then when he speaks, and we do, success. It's connection, uh, you know, it, it's dependence. It's, it's living life with an acute awareness of without him, I can actually do nothing. Without you, God, I, can, I cannot be fruitful. Without you, I cannot have a successful marriage. Without you, I cannot have a successful business. And some people would say, well, I feel I've been successful with business and I haven't got him. Imagine what it would be like if you did. Maybe you are living so far below your true potential. That, that the God gift that he has put within your internal wiring has come to a natural level and it appears like, man, this is real success. But can you imagine if the Holy Spirit harnessed that and he, his life began to flow into that and he began to give, give you God ideas for business and for, for, for life and for uh, you know, administration and whatever else you do. Can you imagine how much further? You would actually go. You know, in him, it's living with that sense of in him, I live and move and have my being. Without him, I wither. Without him, it's dependence. You know, when Elisha was called by Elijah, it's an interesting story in 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah only lasted three chapters. Poor guy, he just appeared and he was gone. But Elisha was his protege. He was the one that he was to raise up. And it's interesting. Elijah finds Elisha, and Elisha is plowing the field. He's got his 12 yoke of oxen. He's a farmer, and he's plowing the field. And the call of God comes to him through the voice of Elijah. And Elijah calls him and says, come, you follow me. And then he says, let me just go and say goodbye to my family, and I'm coming. So he said, you go and do it. But here's the interesting thing. You read it in 1 Kings 19. It says, Elisha did not put the plow and, and the, the yoke of oxen in the shed. Plan B. I'll follow you, but if it doesn't work out, I can always come back to farming. He didn't do that. He was so convinced, no matter what this costs, no matter what this feels like, no matter how much pain this brings, no matter how much challenge I might face in this, I'm in this for good. There's going to be no plan B. The Bible says he slaughtered the oxen. He roasted the meat on the fire that he built with the plow. So he burnt his livelihood. And then he fed the entire village. They all had a big feast. He said, why are you doing this? God's called me. But what if it doesn't work? You can't come back now. You've, you, if this doesn't work, I'm history. 
You see, there was a dependence. There was a sense of, God, you've called me, I'll trust you. No matter how much pain I go through, no matter how much challenge I face, no matter what the horizon looks like, whether the sun's shining or there's a thunderstorm on it, I'm just going to stay the course because I trust you. I live with a daily awareness of your presence, but I also live with a total dependence upon you. I don't have a plan B. And the other thing is continuance. We've got to continue to do that. We've got to continue to live like that. We've got to stay the course. That's what he said. Remain. That means continuing to trust God. So I've been trusting God for a few years now and nothing's changing. Keep trusting him. You see, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. And sometimes what he's trying to do in our life is nowhere near what we think he's trying to do in our life or what we'd like him to do in our life. We just have to let God be God. As the clay on the potter's wheel. God, I'm not going to tell you how to shape me. Well, this is what I want to do for you. This is where I want to go for you. This is how I want to serve you. It's like, well, God might have other plans. He might have other ideas that he wants to mold and shape you into so that you can just be his trophy at the right time in the right place. You know, while ever Abram remained connected and dependent, he was blessed. Leave your father, leave your father's house, leave your family, leave everybody. Go to the land that I'll show you. Revelation, voice from heaven, word from God. When we hear and obey, breakthrough and blessing and fruitfulness will always follow. Maybe not in the time frame we think, but it will always follow. But he went on revelation. But then reason kicked in. And it says, and Lot went with him. You read this, Genesis 12. It's a fascinating story. When you really read it with a simple mind like I've got, you go, hang on, Lot went with him. God just told him to leave his family, leave his father's house. What is Lot doing going with him? Well, reason kicked in. But when you follow the story, Lot became one of the biggest pains in the backside to Abraham. Oh, I shouldn't say that in church, should I? Pains in the neck. You follow it, Lot became one of the greatest distractions, one of the greatest burdens one of the greatest nightmares. Abraham was constantly getting him out of trouble. Abraham was constantly rescuing Lot. Abraham was constantly at loggerheads with Lot. And you think, well, why is this? Where's the blessing of God? Why is this? This little upstart of a nephew causing me so much. You were told not to take him. It's like, let's, let's see it for what it is. We just have to be obedient to what God is saying and follow the revelation. So Lot goes with him. And Lot causes him so much grief and so much pain to the point where Abraham says, because God blessed Abraham. He had so much livestock, so much land. He, Abraham, whether rightly or wrongly, he just said, Lot, I'm over this. Just look wherever you want. If you want the left, you go left. I'll go right. If you want the right, I'll go left. You go right. Whatever you want, Lot, I just I will just be content with that. And then, of course, Lot got his eyes on the lot and lost the lot. But Abraham did not have his eyes on the lot. He had his eyes on the one who provided the lot. 
and gave up the lot but got the lot. I think his name Lot was significant. (laughs) If we would just, you know, you say, oh, well, I don't hear the voice of God that much. Are you remaining? Are you cultivating a place where you can hear? Are you cultivating a place where he can drop things into your heart and speak to your soul? And and then you step out in faith and trust. Are you... uh, have you got the plow in the shed or are you totally abandoned? Are you hopelessly devoted to Jesus? Hopelessly devoted to Jesus. You know, I oh, it's 11 o'clock. God has an amazing plan for our life. And the pain is a part of it. I think it was Luke preached a couple of weeks ago. No, it was Jono. It was Jono about the refining of silver. That's a fascinating study. And I think I shared this when I was hosting at the end of the service, and I'll close with this thought. It says in Malachi that God, our Father, will sit like a refiner of silver. And these ladies were studying the Bible and came across this verse and wondered what that actually meant. So they went to a silversmith and asked the silversmith, what, what does refining silver look like? He said, well, it's bringing all the impurities out of the raw material. It's, and he said, he said, we do that by applying intense heat, pressure. And as the impurities come to the surface, we scrape them off. And then we apply more heat and scrape off more impurity and more heat and we scrape off more impurity. And the lady said to the silversmith, how do you know when it's ready? He said, that's the easiest part of all. He said, when I can look into the molten silver and see my image, I know it's ready. Isn't that what he's trying to do with us? Transform us into his image. And it takes heat. It takes pressure. It takes pain. It takes suffering. Luke said last week, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Because the trials develop faith and perseverance. Let them make you bigger, not bitter. Let them grow you. Let them... Don't don't run off to Egypt... Don't run off to the stuff that makes you feel better. Don't run off to the, the props. The, you know, run to him and let him do his ultimate work in you so that ultimately he can do his work through you. I believe the Lord's really speaking to me right now about the church. And I believe he's talking to me about the vine. I, I found myself just a couple of weeks ago crying out, God, where is this incredible fruitful place? I'm tired of waiting for it. And I was having a real whinge tired of waiting for it all the bad stuff's happened exactly as you prophesied where is the incredible fruitful place and like that he dropped it into my heart if you remain in me and I remain in you you will bear much fruit and the Holy Spirit said to me that's where you'll find the incredible fruitful place and it's like he said to me don't think for one minute I'm going to give you an incredible fruitful place outside the principles of my word 
You know, you can't go through all the pain and all the process and still just keep meandering along without giving me one thought or really giving me the dependence that you need to give me. And you think I'm going to give you fruit when I've already laid it out. If you don't remain in me and I don't remain in you, you can do nothing. And it's like the penny dropped. Jesus has to be elevated. Jesus has to be exalted. Jesus has to be raised in our midst, in our homes, in our families, not just when we come together on Sunday. You see, when we come together on Sunday, if we've been doing it all midweek, it should just automatically erupt with a focus of intense praise of who he is and what he has done for us. Let's keep Jesus at the forefront. It's, we're going to pay for it soon. I've read some really scary articles about people that have been expelled from universities for praying for somebody in the name of Jesus. It's already happening in our country right now. Christianity is a target. We are, we are under the microscope of the world, but Jesus is still on the throne. And if he be lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. We've got to keep him lifted. We've got to stay focused. We've got to keep our eyes you know, set upon him. And we will come through the other side. But let's not see the sunshine as our goal. Let's see the purpose of God that he's trying to do in us as our goal. Because when we get the sunshine, it's only for a season. The cold times have got to come again. Somebody once said, new levels, new devils. You, the higher you go, the bigger the devils you're going to face. You know, you've got, to, you've got to go to another level, you face the devils on that level. You know, down on this level, don't stay there being a big fish in a small pond. Go to the next level, become a small fish in a big pond, face those devils and grow to a big fish again. And then to the next level, we just got to stay the course. Anyway, I'm starting to waffle now. If our band can come back. Father, I just pray this morning that your word, Lord, would not return void. But whatever has been shared today, you will take like seed and you will give each individual exactly what they need today exactly what you have planned for this moment in time for their life and lord i pray today that our eyes would be opened that we might see there is a bigger picture we have to trust we have to believe we have to stay the course we have to hang in there and like job i pray we all come to that place that though he slay me yet will i trust him yet will i trust him I'm not in this for what Jesus will give me. I'm in this for what he has called me to. And I am the, the clay in the potter's hand today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.